0: Hey guys, I hope you're doing better than you were yesterday. Welcome to Sandoku, because we all have the mysteries piled up. My name is Ray and each week I'll plunge into the mysteries of the world, from true crimes and unsolved cases to even supernatural phenomena. I thank you all for taking interest in my small research-based podcast and I hope you all enjoy your time here. Yuki Have you ever heard the word Yuki? Or do you know what does the word Yuki mean? Well, yuki is a Japanese word, which means snow. So you might ask that, why am I talking about snow today? Well, because for this week's episode, I, Rei, as your host, will be taking you all into that snow. Now just try to imagine yourself standing surrounded by the beautiful mountains that are covered in a smooth white blanket of snow. Isn't it beautiful? To just imagine that scenery? Well, what if I say that this mystical scenery holds a mystery within itself? A mystery that is 64 years old. Today, we are going to take a look in an intriguing unsolved mystery from the last century. An event which took the lives of nine Soviet hikers in the northern Ural mountains. What happened between the February 1st and 2nd in the year of 1959? What happened in those mountains that even after 64 years we still don't have any answers? There are theories, but there is no accepted cause as to why we found 9 dead bodies in the Ural Mountains in the year of 1959. 9 Russian trackers why did they die just who or what killed those extremely experienced hikers and why would anybody want to kill them and were they actually killed or was it a natural force that did this well after all these years we still don't have the proper answers for the incident what exactly was that natural force which they were unable to outcome. Was it truly natural or perhaps something that no one thought of? Why don't we try to find out what actually happened? So get ready to dive into the reminiscence of the Dyatlov Pass incident. Well, I hope you all must be familiar with the term the Ural Mountains, or simply known as the Urals. Yes, it's a mountain range in Asia, which mostly runs through Russia. In 1959, a group was formed for a skiing expedition across the northern Urals in Sverdlovsk Oblast, Soviet Union. Igor Diatlov. A 23-year-old radio engineering student at the Ural Polytechnical Institute, the leader assembled a group of nine others for this trip. Now, all of these nine people were from the Ural Polytechnical Institute itself, so they knew each other. Basically, they were, you know, students. Now, the group had 10 members, as I mentioned. Two of them were women and the rest eight were men. Each of the members was an experienced grade 2 hiker with ski tour experience. And upon returning, like upon returning from this trip, they would be certified as grade 3. Now, grade 3 was the highest certification in the Soviet Union at that time. And the certification required the candidates to traverse 300 kilometers. So just remember this information that all of these hikers or skiers were really really experienced and were literally going for the best degree out there. So yeah they had to have a lot of experience and you know speciality in the job that they do that is hiking or skiing. Now I'll be giving you the names of the members of the expedition. You guys don't have to remember them. It's just so you can differentiate you know the 10 people. So as I already mentioned, the leader was Igor Dyatlov, 23 male. Then there was Yuri Doroshenko, 21 male. Lyudmila Dubnina, 20 female. Yuri Kravanshenko, 23 male. Zenaida Kolmoglorova, 22 female. Aleksandr Kolovatov, 23 male. Then there was Nikolai Tebeksis Brignolis, 23 male. Then there was Rustem Solobdin, 23 male, Samyan Zolotaryov, 38 male, and then there was Yuri Yudin, 21 male. Well, I'm so sorry I butchered all these names. Just bear with me, please. About the track route. Well, it was designed by Dyatlov's group to reach the northern regions of the Sverdlovsk Oblast and the upper streams of the Lozva River. Now, this route was actually approved by the Sverdlovsk City Route Commission and the goal of this expedition was to reach Otartan, a mountain 10 kilometers north to the site where the incident took place. Now, this route was estimated as Category 3 and was undertaken in February, which was the most difficult time of the year to traverse with the temperature dropping to minus 30 degrees Celsius. Now, this expedition started around January 27 or on January 27, 1959 and was supposed to last 14 days, around half a month. On January 28, one member of the group, Yuri Yudin, decided to turn back. Now, this was because Yuri was experiencing knee and joint pain. Also, Yuri had some, you know, ailments with her. Or to put it more correctly, Yuri had some health problems like rheumatism and a congenital heart defect. Now, this tragedy is actually well recorded since, you know, all the members had diaries and cameras with them. And almost all the crucial information about the group before they went missing comes from these diaries and videos. On 31st January, the group arrived at the edge of a highland area and started preparations for climbing. Now, the next day, they started moving through the pass. Well, at this point, it seems that they planned to get over the pass and make camp on the opposite side. But this task was not easy, you know, as it seemed. It was more difficult than they have imagined. That was because the weather conditions started to get worse due to heavy snowstorms and, you know, decrease in visibility. The group lost their direction. The group deviated west towards the top of mountain Kulatsikil. Now, this mountain Kulatsikil, which is also known as the Death Mountain among the region's indigenous people, was known as Death Mountain for a certain reason. Now here, the group decided to set up the camp on the slope of this Death Mountain. Even though just 1.5 kilometers downhill, there was a forested area where they could have gotten some shelter from the weather. Although a lot of people question Dyatlov's decision here, but, you know, according to Yudin, when he was interviewed, he said that Dyatlov probably didn't want to lose the altitude that they had gained. Now, let's get back before they, you know, started moving out for the track. So before leaving for the track, Dyatlov had agreed to send a telegram to their sports club as soon as the group returned to vizhai now vizhai was the first town that the group would come to after descending the mountain now the expected date of the return was 12 february but Diatlov expected that it would take longer because these kinds of mission do take longer than expected So when there was no news or, you know, none of the messages was received from the group on the 12th February, there was no immediate action taken because delay of a few days was obviously expected by everybody. It was not until 20th February when the families of the members demanded a rescue operation. Now that was the first rescue group which was sent, which consisted of volunteer students and teachers. Well, later on, the army and police forces were also involved in this rescue operation. You know, they started searching with helicopters and stuff because it did turn out to be a big deal in the end. Now, it was not until February 26 that the searchers actually found a clue about the members. But what they found was so baffling that it just twisted the case even further. The searchers found the tent of the group, but none of the members were inside it. Moreover, it was badly damaged and abandoned with all of the belongings of the members inside the tent. The members left the tent without their shoes, without their coat, without taking any of their belongings with them. They just, it was like out of the blue, they just decided to abandon the tent for good. And yes, they did that. So. It was one of the students named Mikhail Saravin who actually found the tent. The tent had been torn open and there were cuts which left the tent open and upon further investigation of the tent it was actually found that it was torn open from the inside of the tent not from the outside. Yeah that's that's pretty bizarre like people inside the tent it, instead of using the entrance or the exit which is the same opening in the tent for leaving uh for leaving the tent at night obviously that was the purpose of the cuts they made cuts in the tent they literally destroyed the tent that was their only shelter in that snowy weather nothing was particularly taken out of the tent it was just half torn down covered with snow and all the belongings, even the shoes of the members were left behind. Now remember, the weather was harsh, but the group didn't even care to take their coat or even their shoes with them. Now inside the tent, the food supplies were laid out, which suggested that the group was maybe about to cook dinner. Bizarrely enough, they just ripped the tent from the inside and went out in the temperature of minus 40 degrees Celsius without anything on. Well, outside the tent, there were nine sets of footprints. Some suggested they were barefoot, some had only socks on and even just a single shoe on. Now, the investigators followed these footprints and they led them to the edge of the wooded valley which was 1.5 kilometers downhill on the opposite side of the pass. It was in the northeast direction. Although the tracks disappeared after only 500 meters of ascending, due to snow, obviously, but at the forest's edge, the searchers found the remains of a small fire. It was like someone lit the fire in order to get a bit of a relief from the harsh weather, which was coincidentally under a large siberian pine tree and this was the site where the case took a whole new turn the investigators found the members of the Diatlov group or i should say the first two bodies of the Diatlov group they were of Kravanashenko and dorashenko who were found almost completely naked and shoeless but only had their underwears on the branches of the tree the cedar pine tree were broken down up to 5 meters uh, up to 5 meters of height and upon you know investigating the tree they found fragments of human skin on that 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 suggests that maybe one of them might have climbed the tree to look out for something or maybe someone while climbing back the investigators found three more bodies those of diatlov kolmogorova and suloptin they were found at a distance of around 300 meters 480 meters and 630 meters suggesting that the three were attempting to return back to the tent and these three bodies were also in similar conditions they didn't have anything on they didn't have any shoes on they didn't have any clothes on you know just in their underwear in that harsh weather Well, the investigation continued, but there was absolutely no sign of the remaining four members. That wasn't until two months later, when the snow began to defrost, that the remaining four members were found. It was 4th May, when under four meters of snow in a ravine, 75 meters further into the woods from the pine tree, that the four other members were found. Or I should say, the four other bodies were found. There were signs that some of the clothing of those who had died first was removed by the others. As Dubinina was wearing Kravanschenko's burned, torn trousers and her left foot and shin were wrapped in a torn jacket. Now upon further investigation of the bodies, something shocking was discovered as anyone may think that the skiers or the trackers must have died because of the cold weather and suffocation. And yes, that certainly was the case to some extent. Like, the first six bodies had no injuries, although Slobden in had a small crack in his skull, but it was speculated to be non-fatal. Thus, so far, the cause of death was concluded to be hypothermia. But after the remaining four bodies were found, the incident's whole narrative changed three of those bodies although the bodies had no external wounds but upon investigation three of those hikers had fatal injuries Dubinina and Zolotaryov had major chest fractures and Nikolai had major skull damage and according to the report the force required to cause such damage would have been extremely high, even comparable to that of a car crash. Now, these bone fractures suggested that the bodies had been subjected to a high level pressure. The bodies also had some missing parts, like Dubinina was missing her tongue, eyes, part of the lips, as well as facial tissues and a fragment of skull bone. Zolotaryov had his eyeballs missing. And Gulavitov, his neck was twisted and he was missing his eyebrows. The forensic expert performing the postmortem, however, suggested it was due to the location, as the bodies were found at the bottom of a creek in a running stream of water. But the tests conducted on their bodies and clothing showed small traces of radiation. Now, at this time, Kravanashenko had a camera, but nothing was actually clearly seen as it might have mostly been damaged and a lot of the pictures were just blurry. But in 1997, it was revealed that the negatives from the camera were kept in private archives of one of the investigators. But at that time, the investigation reached the conclusion that the group members had died because of a compelling natural force. And the case came to a halt in May 1959 due to the absence of guilty party. And that's it. That's all we know about the case. We don't know what happened. We don't know how, why, or what killed those nine hikers. But there are numerous theories explaining everything. But do those theories really explain everything? Why is it still a mystery? So why don't we take a look at some of those theories, shall we? Now. As I already mentioned, numerous theories have been put forward to explain as to what might have happened, including animal attacks, hypothermia, an avalanche, catabatic winds, infrasound-induced panic, military involvement, and much more. Well, let's get into some of these theories and try to figure out an answer if we can. The first is the avalanche theory. While there is a possibility that an avalanche forced the group to cut open the tent and rush outside in the cold weather without much of the clothing, because obviously I don't think so if an avalanche is coming you have that much time that you can you know grab your personal belongings so yeah. But there are still some evidences which just contradict this theory. First of all the location. While investigating there was no obvious signs of an avalanche. If, like, if there was an avalanche, let's suppose, it would have left certain patterns and debris distributed over a wide area. But as for the bodies, they were found within, you know, like, even for the bodies that were found within a month, that were found in just some days, they, they were just covered in a very shallow layer of snow. And if there was an avalanche, There, as I already mentioned, there should have been debris, but yeah. And even the bodies found later would have been, would have had different injuries and at the same time, tree lines would have been damaged. Also, Diatlov, as I already mentioned, was an experienced skier and Zolotaryov was studying for his master's certificate in ski instruction and mountain. Neither of the two men are likely to set up the camp in the path of a potential avalanche. And as I told you guys to remember that point that all of these members were extremely experienced and extravagant in their field, which means skiing and trekking. So it's not possible that they would have agreed to set up a camp in such a dangerous area where they knew that, you know, this threats our life. I don't think so, it is possible. But there are even more evidences which just contradict it. Like, the biggest thing was their footsteps. They were consistent, suggesting that the nine people were rather calm while making their way out on the mountain. If an avalanche was approaching, their footsteps would have been inconsistent and panicked. I mean, just think for yourself. Just think that you were stuck. In a place where you know that an avalanche is coming down. Would you would you be this calm and composed to remain, you know, to make consistent footsteps in the snow? No, right? You would be running away for your life. You would be running to save yourself. But it was definitely not the case with these footprints. Well, there are many later investigations in this theory, like the weather at the night of the tragedy was actually very harsh. Like, as I already mentioned, that the temperature was around minus 40 degrees Celsius and the wind had the speed of up to 72 to 108 kilometers per hour. Now, there is even a reconstruction of the night which goes something like, on the night of 1st February, They made a tent in the harsh weather in an open area. That means there was obviously no natural barrier to protect them from the weather. Now, let me tell you that this reconstruction is based on the harsh weather theory. So yeah, just keep that in mind. And on top of them setting their tent in an open area, they even unintentionally weakened the base of the snow while digging for the tent. And thus, at night, the snow field above above the tent collapsed and it started to get down into the tent fabric, which is speculated to have started from the entrance. And that was the reason, according to this theory, that the group could not use the entrance to make the exit. That's why they had to, you know, that's why the group panicked they made some cuts in the tent and obviously they had to save themselves from the rapidly approaching avalanche and obviously as it was rapidly approaching they didn't have any time to put anything on although some of the members had the time to kind of dress you know well after all this they finally were able to fled the tent but six of them died due to hypothermia While the other might have tried to find or build a better camping place. But unfortunately, they fell into a snow hole, which is the reason of trauma on their bodies. Now, in modern times, the avalanche theory is the best speculated and best supported. But, you know, there are just just some questions in my mind that just make me not want to believe in this avalanche theory like what about the radiation found on the clothes and according to this theory uh you know like the missing body parts of the members was because they laid down in a running stream of water and it dissolved those tissues i mean can water actually dissolve eye sockets and tongue I really want to know that answer like i'm genuinely asking i wanted to know about it i kind of searched about it but i didn't find anything that said that yeah running water can you know dissolve these things if they can then please let me know i'd be really thankful i'd be really thankful to know about it but yeah moving on we have the theory of katabatic winds now These are the winds that are also known as fall winds as they carry high-density air from higher elevation to down the slope under gravity. And mostly, katabatic winds are common in Antarctica and Greenland. Even though these winds rush down the slopes at hurricane speed, but most of them are 18 km per hour or less, making them less intense. Katabatic winds are rare as well, but that doesn't mean that they are not violent as i said some of them are less intense but they can be really really violent but still the occurrence of catapatic wind is very much unlikely because it was it is not any you know it is not a common phenomena that happens there and yeah it's just it's just very much unlikely well, moving ahead, another hypothesis is of infrasound. Now, what is infrasound? So, infrasound is a low-frequency sound, generally 20 hertz. So, according to this theory, which was actually popularized by a book, the wind that is going around on the Mount Kolatsakiel creates a Carmen Vortex Street. So, this Carmen Vortex Street is a repeating pattern of swollen vortices, which is which is, you know, mostly observed in whirlpools or tornado. You know, like, imagine that there is a tornado or a whirlpool. And if you notice it, then you can see that the wind or the water is flowing or I should say revolving around some kind of axis. You know, as we say that the safest place in the tornado is in the center of the tornado. Because in the center, there is no wind. It's just the All the wind revolves around that center it's something like that so this carmen vortex sheet is a repeating i'm sorry this carmen vortex street is a repeating pattern of such swirly vortices according to this hypothesis a carmen vortex street can produce infrasound which is actually capable of inducing panic attacks in humans well i hope you all got i was what i was trying to say You know, I just spent so much time in this. I actually had to research and think of a way to explain it. I hope that I didn't make it a lot more confusing. But yeah, I'm sorry. I just tried my best to explain it. Yeah, but still, if I confused you, I'm sorry. But it's just, just think of it as there is something called Carmen Vortex Street, which is capable of producing infrasound, capable of inducing, you know, panic attacks in human beings. Now, as I've already told you, there are a lot of speculations. And one of them is one that is most debated, which is the military tests. Now, according to the first hypothesis of the military testings, uh, they said that somehow, you know, the campsite fell within the path of a Soviet parachute mine exercise. It suggests that the hikers fled the tent after hearing explosions, after which some froze to death while others died due to the parachute mine explosions, which actually detonate while still in the air rather than upon striking the surface. Also, the mine produced similar injuries that were experienced by the members, that is heavy internal damage with less external trauma. Now, there were some reports that suggested that there were some kind of sightings of some glowing orange orbs. At first, people actually connected these glowing orange orbs to UFOs. Yes, there is that alien abduction and bizarre UFO theory related to this, but honestly i don't think so that this was the case in at least this incident but yeah some people do speculate that the possibility of extraterrestrial life being involved in this tragedy is not that less but later that was speculated to be military testings like this you know glowing orange orbs in the sky which were seen falling down or flowing in the sky well okay let's for one moment believe on this hypothesis that they died due to, you know, the parachute mines. But when some speculations came, they said that the bodies were actually unnaturally mutated. That means that someone intentionally mutated those because their hairs and skin was burned. Some of the people's hairs and skin were burned. And here the question rises, was it possible that someone purposefully removed their eye sockets and such to maybe torture them? Well, a similar theory which is based on the aspect of radioactivity is there, uh, which suggests that the testing of, you know, radiological weapons was happening in that area. As they did find some radioactive substance in some of the clothing, but this radioactivity is, you know, seen more questioningly because, according to the family members, the bodies were actually, you know, kind of dark brownish or orangish in color, like their skin, and their hairs had turned gray. In the early stages during the investigation, it was actually pretty much neglected. And the case was closed with the conclusion of no foul play and that the nine hikers died of an elemental force that they could not overcome. But what is this elemental force? That is the real question, which lies till this date. Moreover, the findings were actually archived as a secret for a certain amount of time. And people speculated that this was the concealment of, you know, wrongdoings or involvement of the USSR or the military and the government was just trying to hide it all but at that time it was actually a routine in USSR to conceal all these domestic incidences. So far no one really knows what happened to those nine hikers between February 1 and 2 in 1959. Well some more theories are there such as paradoxical undressing. Well it's a state of hypothermia in which when a person becomes perplexed and starts discarding their clothes some say that they were attacked by the local tribesmen, but the mansi are actually known to be very peaceful others says that they were maybe attacked and chased away by by the wildlifes but there was there were just no animal tracks or any evidences found that you know that any wildlife actually attacked the group While some people link the incidences with the unknown, as I've already mentioned about the UFOs, some speculate that it was even the doing of Yetis. Now, this theory came into light when the negatives of Kriwanchenko's camera were released. In one of those photos, you can see a human figure which was slightly hiding behind a tree. Now, no one knows if it was actually a Yeti or a Bigfoot, or whatever you want to call it, because, you know, we have not found a single clue about that. The important things here are that the photo was blurry, and it was really hard to make out anything about it. Maybe it was just some other hiker who was passing by, and they just clicked the photo, and we don't have any explanations, because the person who actually clicked the picture does not exist anymore. Maybe it was a Yeti, who knows? Let's keep our mind open. But I don't think so Yeti would just take their tongues and eye sockets, will they? Well, there are all kinds of why's and what in every theory that is present out there. Some of the theories even say that there was some kind of involvement of military, obviously. But, you know, it was like the group maybe witnessed... military testing which they were not supposed to witness and thus they were tortured or they had to face torture which might have given a clue about the mutilations of their bodies some say that the delayed slab avalanche theory is exactly what happened to the nine hikers but you know the two sent two scientists who actually proposed that theory themselves said that although this theory is fitting the explanation but it doesn't uncover all of the questions like the scientists in question said that although we have the evidence that there was an avalanche but we cannot prove all of the mysteries of the cases the case is still a mystery even after we have the explanation well obviously this explanation is not accepted by everybody that there was an avalanche maybe there was an avalanche who knows but I don't think so that it was just the avalanche that caused this much damage to the bodies. Well, honestly, even if any one of these theories is the right explanation for the tragedy, not everyone is not everyone is going to agree upon that because it has been a mystery for 64 years for a reason because no one have actually no one has actually agreed upon a theory. Some believe it was an avalanche. Other skeptics believe that, you know, no, it was something else. Some people who believe in extraterrestrials ha- says that, yes, it was definitely a UFOs. UFO, some says that it was just the Yeti's doing or whatnot. So there is no conclusion that we have reached so far. And if you believe me, there will be many such theories in the future. And, you know... Maybe we might agree to some of them at some point. But as I already said, 64 years down the lane and there is still no agreed cause as to what happened that night. There are a lot of questions. Why did the group cut the tent from the inside? Why were they not in a hurry while ascending if an avalanche or strong winds were the cause of it all? Or maybe were they walking quietly to hide from something or maybe someone? Did scavengers really remove the eye sockets and tongues, leaving the rest of the bodies? Where did the radioactive substance come from? Or even, what exactly were those orange orbs? Were they actually mines? Like parachute mines? Or maybe they were UFOs? Who knows? You know, there are many such questions that no one knows the answers for. Well, did you find any answers while listening to this? So, what do you think happened to the nine trackers on the Ural Mountains? Well, if you have made any theories or if you have came up with your own, you know, theories or explanation or whatsoever, then do share them with me. Well, while researching, I found one more quite an interesting theory that was the espionage theory, which suggests that Semyon Zolotaryov and Yuri Kramanischenko, along with one other member of the group, were actually working for KGB. Yes, for KGB, and they joined the Diatlovs group because they were to meet with CIA agents and then they were to hand down radioactive materials and, you know, along with some fake nuclear secrets while taking pictures of those agents that might. Tell us about the radioactive substance on their clothes, and about the camera that Kravinsky had. Well, apparently, while investigating, investigators could link Samyon Zolotaryov back to World War II. Yes, uh, apparently, Samyon Zolotaryov was a veteran of World War II. And Yuri Krivanashenko helped clear up a radioactive leak at a secret Soviet nuclear facility few years prior. Strange, right? Now, we are going into that KGB field. But, yeah, this case just becomes more and more bizarre, so I'll leave the rest to you. What do you guys want to believe in? Try and think about it. Maybe the answer lies somewhere within you. Who knows, you know? And this was all I could find about the Dyatlov pass incident. You know, uh, I tried to cover all of the aspects of the case and I just tried to cover all of the theories and important details that I can. And if I was unable to do that, then please forgive me. I am still learning. As you all know, I do clumsy mistakes and what is clumsy mistakes? I mean, I'm t- see. I did a mistake again, how stupid I can be. But yeah, forgive me, forgive your host, forgive Ray for this. But I am with every minute trying to improve. So just be with me in this podcasting journey. And yeah, who knows, someday we might be able to solve an unsolved mystery. And well, this was this week's episode. I hope you all enjoyed this and maybe even came up with your own theories. Please let me know if you did and if you have any, you know, objections about some of the theories or you have any evidences that some of the theories are actually true, then do let me know that as well. I would really want to know what actually was happening in here because in my mind, I was all, I was just thinking about all sorts of possibilities, but all of these theories lack some, some things in them. What do you think about? Do let me know. And that's it. This was the Dyatlov Pass Incident. So, what did you guys think about this week's episode? Did you like the research I did? Or maybe found some mistakes? Then please let me know about them. And if there are any suggestions or any topics you would like me to cover, please feel free to tell me through my email, which is sundakuwithray at the dot com. Or you can also head over to my Instagram at the podcast. Or you can even reach out to me via Twitter at the rate underscore pod. And this is Ray signing off. You were listening to Sundoku because we all have the mysteries piled up. I'll see you guys next week. Until then, have a good time.